My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. When I went to New York recently to launch the American edition of the Wardrobe Crisis book, my dear friend, the Zero Waste Design Master, Timo Rissinen, arranged a beautiful event for me at Parsons, the new school, and we had a packed house. It was fantastic to meet so many inspiring people, especially the students. The next generation is already changing the sustainable fashion world. Another great treat was making a new friend in Kim Jenkins, who is a writer, educator, and increasingly in demand on the intersections between fashion, race, and culture. So Kim teaches at the New School and the Pratt Institute. She sits on the advisory board of the Model Alliance, and she specialises in the socio-cultural and historical influences behind why we wear what we wear. More specifically, addressing how politics, psychology, race and gender shape the way we fashion our identities. At Parsons, Kim has developed a class called Fashion and Race, which inspired this podcast. It's super interesting and important. These are issues we need to be discussing more, from cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation, to diversity on the runway and in imagery, and actually diversity and representation in all areas, not just race, but body type, age, and sweeping away those old-fashioned beauty norms, all of that. This is an intriguing interview. We talk about everything from what it was like for Kim to grow up black in a very white neighbourhood in Texas, how she found and formed her identity, and why she fell in love with fashion TV, crazy Dallas style, oh, the shoulder pads, her time working on the big Jean-Paul Gaultier exhibition, and of course, where fashion has been and where it's headed. Notebooks at the ready class. Hello, Kim. Hello, Claire. Well, I call you Kimberly or Kim. Kim. I'm delighted that we're doing this in New York. Such a pleasure to host you today. Oh, thank you. And you've made a lovely spread, which I've enjoyed greatly. I'm just going to say that we're both wearing awesome vintage corduroy. And we're we're just just coordinating with one another. We are. 
Kim, I wonder mm. if you might like to begin just by telling us a little bit about your work and the courses that you teach at the Pratt Institute and at Parsons. Yes. I have been a lecturer at both schools since the fall of 2013, which I was quite lucky because I graduated in spring of 2013. So to get a job as a professor is... It doesn't happen very often. You must have been brilliant. I'm coming out of a niche field. So nice just deflected. Taking, well, I'm coming out of a niche field. Um, just taking one step back. In, from 2011 to 2013, I graduated with a degree, a master's degree in fashion studies. Um, I was in the second ever graduating class at Parsons, which has this program. And so I think getting a job teaching fashion studies was easier to come by. I, they felt I was qualified, of course, but I was excited to be able to start teaching right away. It was something new. Something new. I had always thought about teaching, but I didn't know it would be possible. And so one exciting thing about teaching is, aside from it keeping you youthful, being around young, brilliant minds, it also kind of, you have to just research all the time and read. And when you're teaching these subjects, it just sharpens your knowledge. So it, it's kind of made me this perpetual student. Yeah. But there was a class I developed in 2014 called Fashion and Race. And it was offered in fall 2016 and more recently fall 2017. And so that's where I really got to see what was possible with teaching fashion. I want to ask you about fashion and justice. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested in that phrase because it feels like a new phrase to me. And I think that we all, or we should at least be across this idea of climate justice, social justice, but fashion and justice, interesting. How would you define that and what does it mean? That was something that has been, it's actually something that I'm continuously defining because it's something that my colleague, Jonathan Square, and I kind of put together last year, we put on a workshop at Parsons called Fashion and Justice. And we were both interested in what does fashion make possible when it comes to achieving social justice or helping with someone's sense of self-determination. So in our workshop, and we just put on another iteration in Austin, Texas. Oh, did you? Uh, it, it, was, it just went very well. It's, it, so it's got legs now. I think it's going to become a traveling workshop. Because um, we're finding all these people interested in this idea of fashion yeah. and justice. So the way we've kind of defined it or presented it to people is that fashion has this ability to help us not just define our identity, but in times of adversity or oppression, um, the clothes on your back, the way you style yourself, just the strategy of styling can be very impactful in um, imploring citizenship, a sense of belonging, a sense of identity when it comes to your ethnicity, helping you to maybe reconcile your racialized identity, things like that. And there's power in that. So um, and we, we touched in Austin, we touched a little bit on um, who makes your clothes also with our participants. Well, our, that's the other side of it, isn't it? I suppose mm -hmm. when you look at this idea of fashion is a feminist issue because it's women predominantly who make our clothes as well as women who wear them. Yes, and to wear something that's seemingly beautiful, it's been created in an ugly way or by exploiting someone somewhere. Absolutely. Renders it hideous, right? I mean, it's interesting. I think that those yeah. these conversations are only beginning to be had to their fullest. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I think so. I think that we need to push a little bit further, especially in terms of fashion with a capital F, like in fashion media. It's still, there's editors, magazines, various publications that just aren't ready to have this conversation yet. 
And if not now, when? It's just not a sexy conversation to have. Oh, nobody wants to hear about the plight of models or, you know, or sexual harassment and assault. Oh, nobody wants to hear about, you know, what's really going on in the factories or what's really going on with the environment, you know, the, the pollution of water when we're dying things. I mean, you're right. But then I also feel that we are feeling a turning of the tide, if you like, Mm -hmm. because I I know I'm in a bubble. (laughs) That's my bubble. But at the same time, I do think that these conversations are rippling out and becoming louder. I mean, if you just pick up a newspaper now on the back of the Me Too movement, looking at, for instance, that conversation around models and around how we're treating models and the injustice suffered by so many in the fashion industry is rising to the top of the conversation, I think, now. I mean, I, I'm not sure if all mainstream media are picking up, but I think there's there's certainly more buy into it. I agree. We are ready to have... Well, it's like you can't escape it. It's like you can't dodge it anymore. It's out there. And it just sort of snowballed, I guess, with the Weinstein scandal and, and then um, here in the US with Donald Trump being elected president. It was just sort of... Something where everything just kind of reached this critical mass with um, how we feel about social justice issues and, and who really wants to step up and what are we really concerned about. And we're able to see what we will tolerate and what we will not tolerate. Fashion and race, which I've recently started to kind of specialize in, there's a conversation being had about that. I don't think I could have pitched this class uh, or done as much work as I have with it five years ago. Yeah. You know, it's and so now with political tensions here in the US with regards to race, now you know, they're ready uh, to have this conversation. Yeah. You, as I you said, you can't avoid moment. it. Moment. You can't avoid it. Actually on a completely tangential note, I'm reading Rose McGowan's book Brave. I had it on mm. the plane. Have you picked it up? I have not. Fascinating. Can you check it out. It's good. But I mean just reading that you think this moment has been made by all these voices that have just come out in response to the whole Trump thing, I think. Uh-huh. The context changed and, and people are saying enough is enough, aren't they? I mean, sometimes you need to be pushed to the limit. Is that true? I think it is. I was asking someone the other day about how they felt that the context of Trumpism has shifted conversations and they were saying that it's almost like, this is quite hideous, it's almost like the boil that needs to be lanced. Ooh. <laughs> But this stuff is rising up and almost like it's just too much. Like we've got to burst the oil. But, you know, and I honestly, I do have a sense of optimism. I think we're kind of in this age of enlightenment right now where we're realizing, um, to I guess borrow from Kylie Jenner's last year uh, or statement, I think it was 2016, it's the year of realizing things. We're realizing, we're looking around each other, speaking of hideous, that we've been around this this whole time, or we've been complicit with it, or there have been voices that for we're years. not listening. Yeah, they've been saying this, of course. And so now we're realizing, oh, racism exists. Oh, you know, really? we've been, you know, <laughs> yeah. damaging the environment. Oh, you know, there, sexual harassment has been going on. God, when you put it like that, I feel like ah, <laughs> yeah, it's like turning on. I think someone has said like turning on the lights and just seeing all the roaches, you know, scatter about, you know, that had been there the whole time. Oh my God, listen to our metaphors. It's the lancing <laughs> of the boil and the roaches. <laughs> but, you know, this ignorance is bliss and now it's, it's unavoidable. Yeah. And now it seems like we are somewhat ready to have these conversations. Okay, Kim, talking of being ready to have these conversations, I'm interested to know how you went originally with this whole idea of intellectualizing fashion mm. and bringing these conversations into a really serious realm because 
I've said this many times on this podcast before, but fashion can be perceived as being kind of frivolous and surface driven and, you know, not so serious. And yet you bring gravitas to this, you bring intellectual rigor to this. And you're saying, actually, this stuff is important. It's deep. It's culture. Yeah. How did you get much pushback from that? Perhaps yeah. when you first went to begin your studies or tell me a little bit about oh. how that works for you. I'm humbled to be surrounded by just the cohort I studied with at Parsons School of Design's Fashion Studies program. I'm humbled by the scholars who I'm meeting now in these spaces who have been doing this work for 10 years, 20 years. This field I come out of, fashion studies, it was something I discovered about seven or eight years ago back in Texas where I'm from. And I was an undergrad studying cultural anthropology and art history going through the books in the library and at the University of Texas in Arlington, where I was going, I was trying to put together all of my undergraduate papers. Whenever given the chance, I wanted to write about clothing and adornment. And my professors were like, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. (laughs) You know, it just wasn't really a feature, something that we should really discuss or it was worthy of, you know, um, scholarly research. And so I discovered this bookshelf at our library And it was these books that didn't quite fit into fashion history, but they didn't quite fit into sociology or or art history or any of those things. And so it was sort of like, what is it? And so I would see on the spines of these books, people like Lou Taylor, Hazel Clark, and many others, um, all writing these books about ways to think through fashion or think about fashion, Anne Hollander, um, how to think about fashion through an art history lens, how to think about fashion through a sociopolitical lens. It was very exciting. So I would grab these books and use them for my papers. And so then I decided to pursue a graduate degree and going online, I found this program at Parsons called Fashion Studies. And in its description, it said, you know, it's fashion mixed with sociology, art history, anthropology. I was like, this is me. Yeah, it's me too. I'm so (laughs) jealous. I never got to do it. And so I met my people. So I just slingshot myself to New York, sold everything, gave away my cat, Kevin, and just... What? Oh, Kevin. (laughs) Kevin. He was not pleased. But I was like, I have to pursue this dream. So I just, I was 30 when I decided to just completely change my life, which I thought was a little risky, but I just thought, I have to pursue this. This is my one opportunity. Kevin? Kevin. He was my little gentleman, long hair, Russian blue. He had a little beard. He was just I'm a cat person, so I'm now thoroughly distracted. And I'm like, but why did you call him Kevin? He was gorgeous. He came with the name Kevin, and it suited him. He was just... So I moved to New York, and um, for the next two years, I, I just was amongst my people, all these other people who were just as interested in this as I was. Why, in your opinion, does fashion matter? You know, people just think about the trends and the celebrities and... and Six spring shoes. Yeah. So... <laughs> or Hemlink. Not thinking about there's a critical or perspective. Or, of course, the art side or the creative side of being a designer. I mean, people understand that. that. But the idea of contextualizing fashion and trying Mm -hmm. to answer that question, which is a deep question, which is why do we wear what we wear? I think it's fabulous. And so that just lent this opportunity to sit people down and, and say, well, you know, have you considered the intersection of fashion and politics maybe of, of what we wear in a courtroom or, you know, how a dress can incriminate someone, um, how dress is everything for a female politician and how seriously she'll be taken. But then also how does she kind of enjoy a sense of agency with being, you know, a little bit fashionable? Have we thought about the economics of fashion? Have we thought about 
fashion and race again, you know, beauty standards, all of these things. I mean, I could just go on and on about mm-hmm. why fashion matters and with our everyday lives. And then people are like, oh, you know, everyone wears clothes unless you're a nudist. You know, it's just even, you know, like that referring to that famous scene in The Devil Wears Prada, you know, just thinking. Cerulean. Yes. <laughs> Oh, fashion, I don't participate in fashion. Or that has nothing, that conversation has nothing to do with me. It's, it goes without saying, you it know, does. even when you and feel you're, you know, out of this conversation about fashion, you are participating in fashion. And even by saying that fashion has nothing to do with you making a choice, you're making a choice not to make a statement with your clothes or to try to be under the radar visually, aren't you? I mean, that's, that's also mm. a choice. Absolutely. Mm, we don't like that. No. We like the flamboyance. <laughs> yeah, we like flamboyance. I want to talk about time. Elsa Clinch. Mm. Um, I happen to know about you, Kim, that you used to watch her show as a kid. I only discovered her quite recently, like a few years ago, when I was researching a book about 80s fashion. And she's an iconic thing in the States, but I'm not sure that all listeners would be aware of her or her TV show. Tell it's us, taken me back. sum her up. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to sum her up because... It goes back to my childhood and my memories of Elsa Clench and Jeannie Becker, who I believe is Canadian. I don't Canadian. know who that is. She had, or has, fashion TV. So they were very, oh, okay. they were working at around the same time, 80s and 90s. And what was special about Elsa Clench. What and was it called? It was, I think it was just Style with Elsa Clench. Yeah, I think so. And then Jeannie Becker had fashion TV. And so for me as a kid, seeing that on television, first Elsa Clench, I will never forget it. I was sitting on the floor in my parents' room and they just had CNN. Back when CNN, it was interesting, in the 80s, CNN was very, it was just very kind of conservative. It was like this intellectual news station. And so all of a sudden on Saturdays, you'd see this person named Elsa Clench take over. And I think it was like the the title was just written in this sexy red style with Elsa Clench. And I just thought, Oh my gosh, you know, and this, this is a moment. And to sum her up, what was important to me, even as a child, I understood this, this is like seven or eight years old. I appreciated that there was this woman coming onto the television, adding the same level of gravitas to fashion with the reporting that you had seen all day long on CNN. I loved it. I just thought, and that's when I learned in that moment, I'm tuning in every Saturday afternoon to watch this because you see the runway shows, her interviewing Interviews designers. Interviews with designers. I mean, I, that's why I got like, into it. Yes. I was just Googling. I was YouTubing Anna Piaggi because I'm writing a book about her and have been for years. And you can find old footage of her around Elsa Clench or Karl Lagerfeld or backstage at a show. 80s stuff. It's fab. And she's yes. always got a jacket with great big shoulder pads on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a headband. <laughs> I loved it. And but it, it was insider stuff, wasn't it? I insider. mean, it was like a window onto this world of this is a Paris show or this is someone in New York who's, I don't know who it would be. Claude Montana or Karl Lagerfeld, or Terry Mugler and, you know, all these just fabulous. And Christian Lacroix, who was my favorite designer as a child. And I just thought, I want to be in that world. Mm. And then, and that's when I latched on and then started the next show was uh, Fashion TV with Jeannie Becker and I, and then House of Style after that with Cindy Crawford, where you had reporters oh, yeah, and these House journalists. Of Style. House of Style on MTV with Cindy Crawford. This continuation of these journalists 
lending again this gravitas to fashion. But also, if you think about this pre-social media age, this was so exciting. Like you would have to get your yeah. fashion information from a magazine or from the television. That was it. Yep. Like you couldn't just hop on Instagram and see everything and have that instant access. So you did have this sense of having to seek it out, didn't you? To seek it out. And then to see it in that same space as news, you know, quote unquote, news coverage of politics, global affairs, things like that. It's so exciting to see those things together. You said that you recall how you felt at eight years old or thereabouts when you watched this stuff on the telly. Yeah. What kind of kid were you? I loved it. There's a picture, like a throwback picture on my Instagram, where I saw the first moment when I loved fashion. It was at my christening, and it was my at godmother. At my christening. <laughs> I was just an infant. And my godmother and my uncle were holding me, and she had this fabulous hat, and through the photo they captured, all I could look at and just be concerned with was her hat. Oh, get out. And so then I have these photos of me as a baby. hat fan. I just love hats. And now in my room I have this whole collection of hats. And so as a kid, I just gravitated to these women who had this very Paloma, Picasso, Chanel, Sade kind of essay. It was just like streaky eye makeup, bold red, big gold earrings, hair slicked back. I love these fabulous women who were just kind of you know, stomping around in these beautiful heeled shoes. And I thought, I want to look like that. You know, I just, whenever family friends would come over, I would just seek out the woman who was the most fabulous dress. And I just thought, I love that. Where did you grow up? I grew up in, in Texas, but uh, Amarillo, Texas, which is in the panhandle, very unfashionable. And then um, Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex area. So most of my life, it was in Dallas. So born in Detroit, but grew up in Texas completely. Before we started recording, we mentioned the Dallas ladies who lunch. Dallas I mean, there's quite ladies. a lot of money awash in the fashion industry in Dallas, isn't there? How would you describe Dallas style? Dallas style is fabulous. We love fashion. We had, well, so one thing that helped was in the 80s, the TV show Dallas. There were all these, you remember in the 80s, there were these fabulous shows like Dynasty, I Dallas, Not Landing. We used to try and stay up to watch really? it because we weren't allowed. Oh. I remember going to my friend Samantha Pedder's house and her parents were really loose and would let us watch it, even though it had filthy sex scenes in it. Oh, yeah. oh gosh, I forgot about that. I don't think they were really filthy, but I think <laughs> when we were seven, you weren't allowed to know. Maybe they didn't want us to be corrupted by the oil money. I'm not sure. It could have been. It was good stuff, though. The, there Crystal were these Carrington. Crystal Carrington and Dallas was sort of the Texan counterpart. And, you know, the dress, the shoulder pads, the big hair and makeup. And so my parents, it was filmed for a time before it moved away to California to be filmed in Dallas. And so my parents would always take family members and there's all these photos of me as a child out on the set of Dallas. And so it's crazy. (laughs) And so we go to the South Fork Ranch And so we have ranches in Dallas and not so much anymore, but, you know, just uh, oil money and cattle barons and all that stuff. And then there's shops. So then we have um, Dallas has developed quite a bit since then. But we have Neiman Marcus, which in the earlier part of the 20th century with Stanley Marcus, he really kind of put Dallas on the map and would just sort of... um, become friendly with all these major designers to show, look, there's a, an abundant market here in Dallas. It was like the early Dubai. It's like, look, yeah. come here. Well, and he was the first person to sort of reinvigorate Chanel in the States, wasn't he? It was 1950, I'm going to say three. And she'd been largely forgotten after the war when she had been 
Well, actually, I think she'd been living with a Nazi, which yeah. wasn't an ideal situation. To be honest, yes. Yeah. But then um, after that, she'd been a sort of forgotten thing, like, mm. oh, this was chic in the 30s, but not so much now. And then Stanley realised that there was a market for this kind of chic and amazing suit and then brought her to Dallas. And that was, her big, that was her big comeback. That is so, and that's what's so interesting. I, you know, that is one thing I think that we're most known for is that Dallas will wear it. Um, so what you're saying is exactly what you're saying. So like that's, you know, designers who have a lot of look sometimes like Carolina Herrera or um, Jean-Paul Gaultier, we will wear it. And so where there's other cities that might be a little more conservative or I don't know if I'll, I'll do the whole look. Dallas will do it. And they just love that because it's just so unapologetic. So Carolina Herrera is always welcome. Giorgio Armani, the late Oscar de la Renta, bring him. Zach Posen is realizing it now. Jean-Paul Gaultier, <laughs> yeah. when he did his exhibition that I interned on several years ago, he loved it. You know, because designers always feel like it's a different world. You get to put on the cowboy hat and the boots and just really go for it. Because we have cars everywhere and we can just wear whatever we want because you're not like here in New York where you have to walk around and everything. Okay. (laughs) I want to come back to New York at a discussion that you moderated on fashion, culture and justice during New York Fashion Week Mm. last season, which included... Elaine Welteroth, who was at that time editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, and also Aurora James, who has Brother Valleys, which is amazing. And we will share a link to this in the notes to the podcast so you can watch it. It's amazing. Ah, Thank you. Um, But at that panel, you asked everyone to begin with a question about cultural identity growing up. And you said, is it something you always embraced? And in what ways has it shaped your work? And I kept thinking, I wish you asked yourself that question, Mm -hmm. Kim. So I want to ask it to you now. And, you know, it's always a tough conversation to have. Um, It was an honor to hear these women tell their stories with um, such candor. And for me, it was quite difficult. Um, Trying to make a long story short, my dad grew up relatively poor in Texas and um, went away to school and made a success of himself as an engineer and worked for IBM for 25 years. And he was among the very few black people working in this new field that was coming out in the late 60s called technology. And so they kind of made an example for him at IBM. And so by the 80s, when he had kind of established himself in sort of corporate America, he thought, well, you know, I want to, you know, put my family in a nice neighborhood. We're going to just kind of live in this very, you know, nice, well-to-do neighborhood. And it was a good idea on paper. But for me growing up, being in an all-white relatively affluent neighborhood, I was rarely ever able to see myself. Just to kind of give you an idea of the landscape, maybe every couple of years there would be a black family who moves into town. We were it, um, along with maybe a couple other black families out of the whole population. So going to school was, it was bittersweet. It just, I was always singled out. I always thought I was ugly. I always thought there's something wrong with my hair. I hated my body. I noticed I didn't have the same kind of body that the popular girls had or all the other kids around me had. I didn't like what I saw in the mirror, my skin tone, all of it. And added to that, growing up black in these spaces, my parents, especially my, well, my late mother, it was always about respectability in a certain way. We hear sometimes um, this phrase, respectability politics, about just sort of being respectable, speaking well, being well-educated, letting everyone know that or how well you're doing for yourself so that you are not seen as uh, living up to a stereotype. Um, So 
that creates a great deal of anxiety for a child to not just deal with your difference, your blatant difference, but also this constant anxiety to fit in and not live up to stereotypes. So this led to my comportment, everything about myself, the way I carried myself, the way I looked, the way I spoke. I always had this kind of sense of self-surveillance to make sure that I was accepted and that people felt comfortable around me. Gosh. And on through my teenage years, and it ate away at me where I, you know, friends wanted to take photos. I didn't really enjoy having my photo taken. And so this low self-esteem that I had developed that was cultivated by societal norms. And sometimes my family, even though they didn't really mean to do that, it came to a head by my late teens. And just on the um, edge of my um, college years, it was something I really needed to reconcile with myself. And I started picking up books. In the neighborhood I grew up in, which was at the time rather rural, you would travel into town and there was a Barnes & Noble that they built there. And it was such a big deal to me. I started going there around the age of 16 and it opened up a whole new world. And I know that we take these things for granted, like Barnes and Noble, but no, because books are a window into another world and books can change your whole yeah. life. I love books so much. Seeing those books, I would just sit on the floors there and I would just find these books. Um, like one book I found, well, besides fashion books that I picked up, I found this book called the color complex. And it was this book about colorism within the black community about feeling bad about your dark skin and us prioritizing or privileging fair skin amongst black people. So it, it opened up a whole new world to me. And that was when I decided, and I I started kind of like moving on to even more challenging books. I was like, this is, you know, is there a place to study this or is there a way, like, how can I merge in my late teen years? I started thinking, how can I reconcile my love of fashion and style with, these critical conversations about race and identity and politics and all of these things. This is also fascinating. And so, um, because at that time I knew I loved fashion, I thought, oh, well, I guess you can only become a fashion designer. I think that's the only thing you can do in fashion. On a completely different note, let's talk about runway shows and fashion. So we're recording this shortly after New York Fashion Week mm-hmm. just happened. And I want to bring that back to the conversation about diversity and about race. I'm always interested to see the Fashion Spot Diversity Report each season, and we'll share some links. And this time it was pretty lame. Like, we had very, very small increases of models of colour on the runway. I think we had a a very small but still a decrease in older models and in plus-size models. What's your take on all that? We're seeing improvement through the push thanks to activists like Beth Ann Hardison, who's been taking the fashion industry to task for several years, especially with her famous letter to the industry that was out a few years ago, asking for more diversity. And various advocates in the fashion industry, thanks to the push, we're seeing a little more. But if we were to look at all the designers right now working in fashion, it's a conversation that some designers just don't want to have. You know, not every designer feels this need when it comes to their aesthetic. I mean, we can take it or leave it. With their aesthetic, once is interested in being pushed to have this diverse runway. They're like, that's not my look, or you know, that's not my cultural experience. Why do I need to have black models on my runway? That's not my style. You know, like Vetmont, you know, I was or designers. Say, you know, some of them are just like, that's not my experience. Why are you dragging me into this conversation? Well, Demna's first show was yeah. entirely white. Yeah. Which I, he did get quite a lot of grief about that. And yeah. I think fair enough, because it was kind of strange. 
I guess I'm going to have an unpopular response. I feel that diversity is good and that we should work towards that. But then I also get it when I see designers from other parts of the world where that is not their experience. Or like Raf Simmons had said in an interview I had seen from in the 90s, he created the runway he wanted to see. And it wasn't even about race. He was going against the kinds of men that were popularly on the runway, these beefcakes that were on the runway in the 90s. And so when he came out with his collection, he had these wafy models. So that was diversity to him. He was just like, I'm not seeing what I want to see on the runways. So I almost feel like we have to diversify the conversation about diversity. So I get it. Is that word actually becoming, is it losing its meaning or losing its impact? Because we're just from overuse and perhaps... In some ways, like cultural appropriation. (laughs) But, you know, so yes, I I agree. Labels like Chromat, my friend Becca McCarran, um, has one of the most diverse runways. But I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to think about it now. I've been pushing, pushing, pushing for diversity. And I've spoken on various panels about diversity and how can we make it more diverse and I don't know. It's kind of subjective and it's, you know, I think we have to diversify the conversation and see how diverse do we need runways to be. And it's not going to be a productive conversation if designers feel forced into it. It needs to be something that is kind of authentic mm. and organic, I feel, mm. in some ways. Um, what I do want to push a conversation on is the conversations we have about standards of beauty and how we perpetuate that on the runways we or need in fashion to do media. That. I feel like until we kind of work ourselves out of this culture, this sort of uh, narrow-minded culture of what's beautiful, um, just that the thin white body is the only thing that's beautiful or straight hair is the only thing that's beautiful. Or youth um, is or the youth only thing is that's the only beautiful. Thing. I mean, that I'm um, interested all in that. these things are, need to be questioned and need to be completely revised. I mean, I'm a bit old and I'm bored of seeing everyone who's mm-hmm. only 17 as being the beauty archetype. And same with body shapes. And That's I, the culture we still have and is, that's what we're going to see on the runways or popularized or on TV shows. I mean, until we kind of work through that, the very roots and start pulling up these roots, then, you know. Mm, I, I, pull up the roots. I pull like up the it. Roots. <laughs> you mentioned Chromat. Yeah. I wonder if you might like to just tell us just briefly about speaking at an excellent exhibition that is currently going on. I think it's until May at the FIT. Do we say FIT? Uh, FIT. Hmm. I say FIT. Right. We could say FIT. I don't know what um, you say. It was a conversation about FIT. <laughs> um, um, and it, that exhibition is called Fashion... The Body, Fashion and Physique, curated by Emma McClendon and... Excited to be part of that in some small way. There is a film that plays at the beginning of the exhibition to anyone who goes to it. And I'm featured in it, model activist Sarah Ziff, and many others. And so we put on a symposium. We, I was part of a symposium. Like I, I put together this entire thing. Uh, <laughs> Emma put together a symposium called Fashion and Physique. And it was a full day symposium about all things regarding the body. And it was filled with panel discussions and papers, uh, research done on the body and all the different ways we can think about it. And so I was featured after Tim Gunn, which I was completely geeked out about. <laughs> great. He said, great job after it, and I just died. He and Valerie Steele, the Valerie fashion Steele, history the best curator. She's amazing. They both were like, good job. And I just thought, yes. I'm done. I can move back to Texas. I don't need to do anything else here in fashion. I think I'm finished. Um, I took the stage with um, Becca McCarran. Becca McCarran, 
creative visionary behind Chromat, and Christian Seriano of Project Runway fame, who just recently just, uh, celebrated his 10-year anniversary. And he is so, so formidable in terms of pushing this conversation around, let's celebrate different shapes. Yes. He does beautiful work, and he celebrates bigger bodies, smaller bodies. He's just really changing the game, I think, with that. Absolutely. So and I, with so much positivity, which is what I love about so what he does. So much positivity. But, and it was just the conversation I had with them. They're embodying the change we need to see. And when I spoke with Christian Seriano, he's just so easy about it. He just kind of yeah. thinks, well, yeah, you know, a comedian Leslie Jones needed a dress, so I made her one. So one thing he was talking about in, in uh, our and conversation. Actually, we will share some links to that because if you're not yes. aware of that story where people didn't want to dress Leslie for, a, what was the award? It, it was forgotten. the premiere for Ghostbusters. Oh, it was the premiere. Yeah, and it was just absurd and terrible just, that designers had said they wouldn't dress her. I mean, amazing. He and Becca McCarran on stage presented physical examples of, you know, just what we should do in the fashion system and how, I, I would not say it's easy, but that it can be done. You know, because Christian would just say, well, you know, it's just bad business. You know, why would you, there's money to be made, women to dress. Like, why wouldn't you want to dress all these bodies? Just accommodate them. Becca McCarran will say the same thing. You know, she doesn't hide behind the formality that many designers say of when a model goes in, oh, we don't have any samples for you, or there's no way we can, you know, fit you into anything. She's like, I just make it work, you know. She's I'm actually, uh, just to interject there, um, there's an interview in series one of this podcast with Ramon from Tome, and they have done some really cool work in this space and also have spoken with great forthrightness about the fact that it's just a cop-out to say sorry we don't have samples except in a size Mm -hmm. zero you know just make more samples like it's make different samples it's your choice it's not impossible yeah and and so they also present diverse beauty ideals on their runways and they find they're a little brand and they're able to do it it's possible and speaking of you know making change like there's also when it comes to makeup you know when rihanna came out with fenty beauty Granted, you know, there have been diverse makeup companies around, but, you know, once we kind of hit this peak, kind of going back to our, what we were saying earlier of, you know, are we seeing the change in this change of the tide? You know, when she came out with Fenty Beauty and its diverse range, then people were just hopping on the bandwagon and just say, oh, oh is yes. that a thing? Oh, <laughs> you know, oh, we have a diverse range of foundations too. But also you it's know. funny, isn't it? That whole idea of it is just good business. Why would you want to marginalize all people? I mean, Makes why would no you only sense. want to serve a very tiny number of people who are the tiny bodied, perfect, rich couture customer? Like what right. does that even mean? That's exactly what I said in our uh, conversation, uh, in my conversation with Becca and Christian is that it's just profitable, not just monetarily, but culturally, you know, for people to see themselves, especially African-American women are a huge market. They will spend their money with you if you, you know, cater to them. Like, just, again, just repeating what Christian Seriano said, like, why not? He just did not, he couldn't wrap his head around why designers are coming up with just infinite yeah, excuses. Yeah. Let's talk about the thorny issue of cultural appropriation. Mm. We mentioned before that that word diversity has perhaps been overused and it could potentially lose its meaning if we're not thinking deeply around what it really means. Let's talk about cultural appropriation as a phrase. And also perhaps you could begin by defining the difference or telling us what that really means, because I think some people are confused. You Um, know, what's the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation and inspiration? Um, I think the easiest thing to do would be to draw on the work of Susan Scafidi, who has created this relatively new field called um, fashion law. 
at the Fordham Law School here in New York. And she has a book called um, Who Owns Culture that she published, I think, a decade ago. And so when we define cultural appropriation, more often than not, we kind of use in the legal sense of when you're actually taking something that is private property or somewhat precious property from a person or a group of people um, for your own means. And it becomes a thorny issue when, when you're taking it for your own means, you are profiting from it and not crediting the person or persons who you took it away from. And so she deals with this all the time. And one thing she famously came out with is the three S's. And if I can remember it correctly, the order, the three S's are source, significance, and similarity. So just explaining those briefly. Source, um, and this is just for you or any designer uh, to keep in your back pocket when you're looking at something or shopping for something or inspired by something. Source is where does it come from? Can you identify that? Stop right there if you already can't, you know, tell where it's from and who it's from or what culture it's from. The second thing is significance. Does it have a sacred significance? You know, is it related to a faith or religion or some sort of political issue or regarding someone's ethnicity or race or anything like that? And then similarity. How close does it look, uh, whatever you decide to buy or wear or design, to the genuine article, the original thing? And, you know, so those are the things to think about, the three S's. And that's when you're dealing with cultural appropriation, or that's one way to sort of navigate Mm. cultural appropriation. Mm. Um, And appreciation also is a little sticky, um, because when it comes to appreciation, you have to speak to the person. I I feel like it's best explained by the person who is wearing it or designing it um, because you never know. It could have some sort of personal significance. You might want to quickly leap on a blonde woman who's walking around in this sort of Indian garb and say, oh, you know, wagging your finger at her. That's appropriation. When she says, well, I'm married to an Indian man and I, or, you know, we've lived there for five or 10 years. So that's where it becomes sticky. She could genuinely be appreciating the culture. And so it's become a hotbed issue, especially amongst my students. My students um, like navigating these things uh, because it has to do with power. And Absolutely. That's the key. And privilege. And in these times... And abuse of power. Abuse and of I power. Mean, there are so many examples of fashion designers plundering other cultures without due respect and without credit i mean we could rattle some off isabel morant sorry yeah. but she did that didn't she they were women their blouse uh, yeah we could go on um and- i mean the controversy that keeps surrounding mark jacobs shows yeah. i wonder why he doesn't learn his lesson because she is in trouble now I want to just raise that thing about turbans because you and I both love fashion history. I'm a great fan of that whole Diana Vreeland era. But when Mm -hmm. you look at 60s Vogue when Vreeland was in charge, those beautiful photographs, which I've always revered and loved, there's a lot of, in inverted commas, exoticism in those pictures. You've got Varushka done up like I don't know what, Persian princess. Tibetan, goodness knows, I can't remember the individual pictures, but there's a lot of that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff that I think came out of the hippie trail and that idea of... I'm going to use these awful words like exploring, you know, but that's kind of what it, it, that's what she was thinking. The fabulousness of exploring other cultures and countries. But when we look back at those pictures now, do they not fit? And I think when you perhaps talk about Mark Jacobs, I don't want to put words in his mouth, I've never asked him, but I bet he feels inspired by that stuff. And I bet that in the 80s when there was a great turban time and taboo or London Mm -hmm. nightclubs or wherever he was in New York, 
how do we sort of recalibrate our thinking behind how we used to do things and how we need to do them now because the conversation's changed and it needs to change and we mm-hmm. need to learn and re-educate ourselves and understand this idea of power and privilege and if mm-hmm. we don't we suck and I think that's what Mark needs to realize <laughs> take my fashion and race class right so I invite Mark to sit in you know hey we're in New York you went to Parsons Mark you know because what I do is even beyond Diana Vreeland, which is a good example, I talk about in my fashion history class, I, I kind of start around the 19th century, but by the early 20th century, I have a couple of weeks where I talk about the sense of voyeurism and Orientalism. And I was about all to the, say, all what of about these all that Poiré stuff? Poiré. You know, the roots of that are sort of... I want to say sultans or what was it? But, that, you know, lying around on cushions in Persian regalia. L'Arte Negre, which was this collection of African art and just keeping these sculptural bodies in avant-garde Paris. There's this fabulous book called Negrophilia. Oh, um, Nancy Cunard in all that bangles. Oh, Nancy Car- So she's featured in the book Negrophilia. It was about avant-garde Paris in the 1920s and their obsession with all things black and African and safaris happening, you know. And so this... Um, she moved to New York with her jazz musician lover, didn't she? She had that. And so it was just, you know... I. But she Supposedly would she was an ally. Right, I was going to say. But still, I so mean, there was some appreciation in there. But it's just to say, like, this was this trope that happens, especially not just in art, but by the time fashion media really takes off with magazines and these editorial spreads of just exploring the other and using them at worst as a prop. Um, using their location as just this exotic temporary backdrop. But not inviting them, in inverted commas, into the creative process. That's where therein lies the rub, right? Exactly. Using and objectifying or fetishizing the style or the material culture of these people. One thing I talk about in Fashion and Race is subject position, where I have my students kind of look at all these editorial images and think about subject position. When you're looking at these subjects in a photo, who's in power... Oftentimes, in many, they'll remain nameless, but famous magazines, glossies, you know, there'll be these editorial spreads of the model, and they're usually a white model, just standing in the center. And then she's surrounded, when we're thinking about the subject position, by all of the brown locals. You know, they're just all happy to be there, and they're all kind of celebrating her, and she is anchoring the image and centered, which continues this image and um, Dressed as a geisha. Just as a geisha, and it just continues the thought that white always is anchored in the center. It is the center. It is the center of the universe, and it is the center of this image. Don't forget that. You know, there's just, or there's, oh, God, this one photo I saw. There was a model in a boat. I think it was in Vietnam. And so you have this Asian man rowing the boat, and then she's just standing fabulous and in some swimsuit. You know, it's just this like he's just the help. we've always done it. I'm putting it's, my hands on my face. Yeah. Because when you actually think about this, it's just 10 times wrong, isn't it? Yeah. And yet this is how we've done it. I work in fashion for 20 years. Millions of those stories have passed my desk and still continue to, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. We need to recalibrate this, but how are we going to do it? Because you've got years of learnings that need to be unlearned by those who've abused power unknowingly. I mean, I doubt Mark Jacobs is sitting in his room thinking I'd love to offend a few people whose power I'm abusing. <laughs> and get, but but how do we how do we navigate that? All of these older designers, older stylists, older photographers, older editors 
who this is just the way we do things. It's time for them to take a seat. <laughs> and, and now we need some yeah. fresh blood in here with what's, new ideas. What's really interesting, though, is that fashion should and has always positioned itself as being this great modern leader, as being open to new ideas and driven by new ideas. And yet, in some ways, we're really sort of anchored in Very old traditional. fashion thinking, aren't we? Not enough innovation. Very traditional. And we need to innovate what we're doing. I have faith, and again, this is kind of speaking from a bubble, in the fashion students that are coming through now. Because they're not just fashion design students I work with. Um, they're going into merchandising or marketing, and they are just tired. They say, Kim, you know, I don't want to be a part of this existing fashion system. I'm ready to change it. And it was so exciting to see those students who are white all enrolling in my fashion and race class. And on the first day of class, I asked them, why are you here? Why are you taking this class? And again, these are white students. And they say, I want to be part of the change. I don't want to uphold the status quo. I'm here to learn. I want to hear from these other students, you know, students of color in this room. I want to know what we're doing wrong. So I do not make these mistakes. And I have so much faith and I'm, I'm just so excited for this new generation of people coming into fashion. Me too. And I feel that way about the conversation around sustainability as well, that this is in some respects new territory for some mm. of us, but that also there's so much scope to change the way we do things. There's We're so good much. at change. Let's change. And But that's change the problem. Change is positive. People don't want, you know, oh, it's going to take so much work or, oh, <laughs> I've been teaching this for 20 years. Now I'm going to have to learn something new. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel